Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Jason Silva. You likely know Jason from National Geographic's number one rated show, Brain Games. He also has an incredible uh, YouTube series called Shots of Awe. He's really at the forefront of the conversation as it relates to artistry, creativity, consciousness, futurism, and his videos are super, super inspirational and have uh, created quite a flurry on the interwebs. And I've known Jason for now a decade, and he is a dear friend, and we go deep on this one. I think you're going to find a tremendous amount of value. We talk about the nature of consciousness. We talk about uh, psycho psychedelics. We talk about dating. We talk about love. We talk about death. We really go all the places. And I was thrilled with this episode, and I think you will be too. Before we get into it, I just want to say, if you haven't gone ahead and left us uh, a review on iTunes, please go ahead and take 20 seconds to do so. Uh, your five-star reviews mean the world to me. I'm so grateful. Uh, we are growing fast, and they help me get both great guests as well as to grow in the algorithm so that the shows can be seen by more people. So I, I really appreciate it. Uh, this episode is brought to you by two of my favorite companies. The first is One Farm by Wayab. One Farm is my go-to source for super high-quality organic CBD. They handpick all of their plants and use organic MCT oil as a base. And if you haven't looked into the benefits of CBD in terms of our endocannabinoid system and the way that it helps to regulate and bring about a sense of balance, I find it assuages anxiety. It's really uh, been a, a great tool in my toolkit. I highly recommend you check them out. It's onefarm.com. And if you put in Peak Mind at checkout, you get 20% off your order. Again, that's onefarm.com and put in Peak Mind at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Blue Blocks. Blue Blocks are my go-to source for all things light hygiene. I have their Lumi light bulbs. I also have their computer glasses, which I use during the daytime to block out harmful blue light and keep my hormones in a good way and regulate uh, my light so that I can get a great night's sleep. I also use their blue light blocking glasses um, after the sun sets. I did a deep dive on light and light hygiene with their founder, Andy Mance, uh, which you can check out uh, in the uh, episodes below. And I think you'll get a tremendous amount of value if you do drop into that episode. We've, we go into the nuances of light and circadian rhythm and light health. Uh, but needless to say, uh, Blue Blocks, impeccable quality, um, huge amount of scientific research that went into their product. Check them out, Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. And if you put in peak at checkout, you get 15% off your order. Again, that's blueblocks.com and put in peak at checkout. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Jason Silva. All right. I'm here with my brother, Jason Silva. Jason, it's a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for having me on. It's, uh, it's Michael Trainer. God, we've been, we've been friends now for about a decade. We have, yeah. We uh, we found out quickly when we first met that we had s dated the same girl. 
that was. I didn't anticipate talking about that on this podcast. However, yeah, you came over to a barbecue at my house in yes. Chelsea in New York yes. with a, a woman that I happened to be dating at the time. Right. Which I think is testament to our friendship because it actually didn't even put a ripple in. Uh, Not at all. Yeah. 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 No, there was this there was this kind of just acknowledgement. Like, okay, look, you're kind of going out with her and so am I. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm sure you're a great guy. And then we just, we hit it off. I remember we had a great conversation. And since then, I think we've, we've gone to a a bunch of events over the years. Yes. And, um, I think the, that our taste in social gatherings has, has evolved in, in congruence. I think that's a, I think that's an accurate assessment. You and I talked, uh, I think our last gathering was on the beach, which was yeah. uh, testament itself to to my priorities these days. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I think we've both uh, we've moved from, you know, I think the first the, the the second time we hung out, I think was in a a fancy hotel bar with that I remember. Yeah. There there was alcohol, yeah. and 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 there was beautiful people around and we were we were in it we were like in the scene <laughs> we, were, we were getting we were. high off the scene <laughs> we were and, and there was like after parties i have like memories of after parties also with you yeah we had yep. to go down like staircases and like to new york basement yes. after hour parties or something yeah that was a whole aspect of of life yeah the, yeah. New, the new york scene if you will yeah and we were we were in it I don't really do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, I've I've definitely evolved beyond that. I, I used to think that was the only place to meet women. Yes. Um, I was always, I feel like I've always been, when I'm single, perpetually hungry for a girlfriend. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I, I, it's just like, well, where do you find a girlfriend? Like, where do you find a girl that you're going to be like physically attracted to and connect with? Well, you go to, to the place where, there's density, and yeah. that was like the scene, you know, with the bars, the nightclubs. And even though they were atrocious for connecting with someone because it was loud, there was music, uh, it was like impossible to have a quiet conversation. But that's where, in my mind at the time, they were at. I mean, I think that is where the whole culture kind of goes to find right. the one, you right. know, which is interesting because it's definitely not generally, at least in my experience, where one finds uh, – the quality connection, as you as you as you so eloquently no, put it, it usually results in, in frustration, feeling sorry for yourself, drinking too much, not sleeping well, having a hangover the next day. <laughs> yeah, which is actually what we talked about on the beach. So I've been off, I've been off alcohol now for almost eight months, yeah. and that's been a radical experiment for me as well. And I will say it's interesting, being as that I'm single still to this at this moment, uh, which I believe you are as well. Um, going out on dates without alcohol is a very interesting experience because you really have to uh be you you know if you're connected real quick mm-hmm. and if not there's no there's no there's no uh there's no crutch to make it more comfortable. Sure. I mean if you think of <laughs> if you if you think of alcohol as as a tool that we deploy to aid in social lubrication. Yeah. You know it it numbs out our self-consciousness. That's the first thing it does. Yeah. Be- before you get to the point of drinking too much, what it does is is sort of dissipate inhibition. Yeah. And when inhibition is not there, you supposedly more easily connect. Um, but the truth is, if you're able to get past your own inhibitions without alcohol, 
that's a major stepping stone in healthy living. I agree. And then connecting. I agree. I th- what I've found is I've made a commitment because I'm at the phase in life where I'm very interested in calling in whoever it is that that is my person to walk this life with. And your queen. <laughs> I almost said it, but since since you gave me a hard time for saying that the other day, I, I, I self censored. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not giving you a hard time at all. I, this, this was more of a playful commentary on how terminology and framing. Uh, becomes part of like the cultural zeitgeist. Like like two years ago, you talk about falling in love and you're talking about your girlfriend, you talk about finding a woman that's going to be the mother of your children, connecting with somebody forever. Like there's all these ways that you describe the one. Yes. But only over the last like year and a half, like since going to Burning Man, connecting to a more spiritual community, you might say, of people. uh, Now I've come across this new way in which conscious men describe the one. They're like looking for their queen, (laughs) and 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 it's 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 endearing. It's adorable. I mean, I like I like the idea, my queen, you know. Um, But I just what I think is funny is when I hear these new ways of describing things become zeitgeisty. It just makes me appreciate how memes circulate you know 100%. and it makes me wonder also how many people who are looking for their queen came up with that framing or are just going along to get along because that's how everybody's framing it yeah do you know what i mean these I, are things that i sometimes notice uh you know and when, when new cultural words get zeitgeisty yeah, well, I think it's interesting. Have you ever read King Warrior, Magician Lover? <laughs> you know how I came across that book? Uh, there's a, a YouTube channel called Like Stories of Old. Mm. It's it's fabulous. It's, it's it's truly a work of art. It's this Dutch guy, and he does these magnificent um, distillations of cinema mm. and, and breaks down their like archetypal messaging, just, just sublime. And he's got a series... Uh, of all the different archetypes, yeah, uh, the warrior, the lover, and my favorite one of all is archetype of the magician. Yes, and in that episode, he talks about that book. Um, one of the co-writers, I believe, his last name is Moore, mm. something Moore. But but yeah, I I did hear about that book, and then the girlfriend that I had over the past year and a half, she had that book as well. So it, maybe that's how it entered the the zeitgeist. Well, I think what's interesting about that concept in terms of the zeitgeist is that notion of King as an aspect of, for those listening, the archetype of the mature masculine, right? So in in his framing, which I think has been interesting for me because I do think, and one of the things I love about you is just the way your mind works as as it relates to history, as it relates to concepts of love, as it relates to processes of ecstasies. But what he talks about is this notion of the archetype of the king and sort of this triangle, which is this process of individuation articulated in a very uh, beautiful way. And he talks about the unindividuated masculine. And one aspect is the armchair tyrant. And without getting political, it's interesting because I think in this day and time, I see a lot of uh, examples, if you will, of the armchair tyrant. What is is the armchair tyrant? Armchair tyrant is like what what I would describe as like the narcissistic, unindividuated aspect that that we see quite prevalent in Mm. our sort of 
day and age mm-hmm. um, in certain aspects of leadership, for example, in this country, I might suggest, uh, mm. wherein, wherein it's so traditionally, and this goes into the warrior archetype, but the warrior archetype wasn't the I go off to war to conquer. It wasn't the conquistador, mm-hmm. right? It was the it was the Lakota, you know, it's a good day to die. In other words, I stand in service to something bigger than myself, and I'm mm. willing to sacrifice myself in service to that, mm. that moreness, if you will. Mm. Is that and I, so the Achilles archetype? Perhaps. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the king, I think the king traditionally, uh, obviously not exemplified in every aspect of history, but traditionally would be standing in that self-sovereignty mm. in service to a kingdom where they were a servant king, just as you would be a servant warrior. So uh-huh. I like that idea. The king of, that is serving his people. Exactly, as opposed to exploiting, mm. uh, which I think in some ways we see uh, out in the world. But mm. I do like the idea, uh, whether it be new agey or not, I do like the idea of stepping into a new vision, which is which is actually, I think, an old vision. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of times, for example, in the, some of the indigenous cultures that I, that I very much appreciate, that notion of service being paramount within the archetype. And so one of the areas I'm looking to evolve to bring it back into personal uh, is, is stepping more into, you know, and I, this, this manifests for me, and I love your perspective on freedom because uh, you and I have spoken about freedom as core values. But where I'm evolving from a place of seeing freedom in the context of dating and personally as being able to go anytime, being able to leave, kind of the one foot in, one foot out the door, um, and seeing freedom as endless options, that paradox of choice we talked about in the, on the way up, and now actually embracing the idea, which I think is more aligned with this idea of service, but of being in a place where commitment could breed a sense of freedom, where from a place of commitment, I may evolve into a whole new aspect of self that's more commensurate with a fulfillment, a fun that's rooted in fulfillment rather than fun for the sake of fun and freedom. That's interesting. Um, Yeah, there's a tension between freedom and commitment for me. I think if you really break down what am I committed to or what do my actions show that I'm committed to, you might say, well, I'm committed to chasing my excitement, mm-hmm. to chasing my bliss, novelty, to, to chasing novelty and adventure and to follow my curiosity. Um, that's been an enduring commitment. You yeah. know, my, my desire to capture lightning in a bottle, the tension between the ephemeral and the transient that even our greatest ecstasies and insights and divinations are transitory. They're passing moments. And then my tension there because of me wanting to capture lightning in a bottle. So you can trace back that commitment of me working with the camera as, you know, the tool of the gods. It does capture lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, since I was, you know, 16 years old, even earlier since I was 14, you know, my first camera in 1993. Um, so... That's an unending commitment that I've had, you know, and they say, ask not what the world needs, ask instead what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. I've chased my aliveness. Um, But as a consequence of that, I associate aliveness with the thrill of the new, with being in constant motion, with what's around the bend, right? I get I tire easily from what I become used to. Hedonic adaptation has always been a curse for me, right? That's that when you eat the same piece of chocolate until it it stops tasting as good, so to speak. And so because of that, 
other commitments that might keep me stationary, like living somewhere, like buying a home, perhaps like getting married. There's been this aversion mm. because it's almost like I'm, I don't trust my future self. Like I'm like, oh, this home looks amazing, but what if I like buy it? And then as soon as I own it, I feel like it's like weighing me down. There's that like totally. sort of this, I'm projecting myself in time and I'm, and I'm, and I'm assuming that I'm going to like eventually regret having it. And, and, and instead I miss out on the opportunity of like maybe buying it and enjoying it for five years and then selling it. But the point is it has kept me one foot in, one foot out in other areas of my life, except for that one thing that I'm committed to, which is chasing my excitement. So that's a bit of a, that's, that's a bit of a tension for me, you know, and it's affected, you know, it's affected relationships. It's made my life certainly untraditional. I mean, that's a very real thing. So there are, you know, there are consequences, there are compromises, um, no doubt, you know, but that's, that's where I'm at so far. What do you think if you were to look at that? Because I know that that, and I think you and I share this that that desire for the novel, that desire for the ecstasies of the new, the freshness of. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw that just walking down the Venice canals with you, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like w- w- the degree to which you were, it was wild. I mean, like for those listening, I mean, Jason literally lit up. It was like yeah. seeing. I don't want to say a kid at Christmas, but it was that yeah. sort of. You could feel your shift, and you you noticed because you had never been there before. That's the that's the. the the, the newness of everything you were noticing all the details the textures yeah. the the yeah. so i i saw i see that as an authentic aspect of expression for you and but yeah. but but what's it i guess what's maybe there's there's something at stake in terms of the obviously the the ability to see you know you and i talked about have talked about this before i love the novelty of travel and i've studied for example when i lived in sri lanka monastic traditions you know the the village and the forest dwelling monk mm. and the village dwelling monk and the forest dwelling monk, monk i think are fascinating archetypes right the 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 forest dwelling monk is the traditional notion of the monastic, right? They renounce the world. They go into the forest and 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 renounce all all the worldly possessions, all the worldly stimuli to seek that that cessation of suffering, that enlightenment within. Whereas the 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 village dwelling monk is on the same journey, but through an entirely different context, right? They're going into the bodhisattva paradigm, right? I'm going to sacrifice my own enlightenment to serve mm. all of humanity. Mm. I'm going to go into the shit of, mm. of, of, of the village, right? Mm. All the suffering and the nuances. And, 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 and so I think what's interesting is I think we're in sort of a village-dwelling paradigm, if you will, where we're, we're in this kind of... And I know you resonate. I've spoken about Terrence McKenna. He talks about this notion of, you know, the world has changed more since 1992 than the previous thousand years. And so we're in this. And this is where I'd love to talk with you because this is an area, obviously, you have such profound experience in. But that notion of being in the village, if you will, and the village evolving at such an exponential rate, how does one find that? Because I think amidst the novelty, you have the ecstasies of the moment. But as with any ecstatic experience, the work is also in the integration. Yeah. So how does one find center in the village? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely, you could think of, of, of the human enterprise as a sort of novelty engendering engine. Yeah. But even before the human enterprise, biological evolution was a novelty engendering engine. Mm. It was sprouting diversity. You know, it was creating new things. Yeah. So... To that end, I don't think we're all that different from from nature, right? Um, Life itself, anything biological seems to be, even though it is subject to entropy, 
on an individual basis, as a collective, it's an anti-entropic thing. Like life moves towards greater complexity and organization and it wants to engender more novelty, right? So in that sense, life is extropic. And I think for me, as an individual, I'm battling entropy. My desire for novelty is my way of saying I want to be like culture or like biological evolution. I want to have more experiences. I want to move towards greater complexity and organization. I want to have more insights and more downloads. I want to like keep ascending teleologically. Mm. I don't want to peak and like descend and wither away and die. Like I'm just not interested in that. So this 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 desire for the next thing, for constant ascendance or discovery. I actually think it is it is wired in, in, in the human being. There was a, a neuroscientist that I listened to on a podcast once that who was talking about novelty, and he says, you know, you could call a human being, you know, a carnivore or an herbivore, but what we should really call ourselves is infovores, mm. and in the sense that we eat new interpretable information constantly. It nourishes us. We take in most information through the visual cortex, which is connected to like half of the brain. And so the constant access to new interpretable information is the only thing that satiates us. And when we don't have access to new interpretable information, we grow bored. Now, of course, there's like, I'm sure that, that and not every individual is the same, but I, I, I certainly think that some of us are wired that way. Yes. You know, that, that we get a dopamine hit from exploration from expanding our repertoire of experiences, which, which again, I, I think goes back to this idea of like wanting to experience and then engender novelty. Like, like I'm, I'm a pretty prolific creator. Like yeah. I have vomited and, 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 and in, in kind of, in a kind of exorcism extracted so much content from myself. But what I tell people is that that content is the, is the afterglow of experiences of expansiveness that I have. So I need to go have new experiences that hurl me into new domains, into new places, into new spaces. And then you talk about the integration. Well, for me, the integration is the content. Mm. I have the experience. And then my the way that I process it, the way I metabolize it and make it my own is through the the, the recording and the video content. So to that end, the way that I justify my insatiable hunger for new adventures um, is that I leave plenty of material in my wake. Yes. So, so through chasing my excitement, I also make a contribution. This is fascinating to me because it triggers for me the spirit of the old explorers, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, like there's a, there's a movie called mountains on the moon and it was mm. about trying to find the source of the Nile. Mm. And a hundred years ago, I could see you in that archetype of the explorer perpetually looking for new ground. And now we're that exploration looks uh, different, right? It's cognitive exploration. It's ex exploration into, into the, the new and novel beyond what was, you know, the, the simply the terrain of old and into sort of more cognition and, and futurism and the, these possibilities my, my 
what's interesting is though now that you're recording it and using the digital footprints as well for the integration what's fascinating to me is the degree to which that gestates new possibilities and new experiences right i remember talking to you when you were just about to launch shots of awe and talking to you on the beach about the people that have reached out to you because they've seen your video so literally the footprints that you've left along the way create more create novelty. an entire world more of possibility. new possibility yeah so that's the ultimate for me, uh, creative career hack, so to speak, in that the more I chase my excitement, the more it results in content, a library of content in reflection on those experiences. And then I seed that content. And then when I sleep and rest and recover, which is part of the flow cycle, Mm -hmm. um, my content is out there in the world, spraying into people's eyeballs and spraying into their earlobes and in their brains. Um, And then I'm waking up to people who have seen the content and then it has sprouted new ideas in their brains of how they might collaborate with me. And so then I wake up to new invitations, new possibilities and more and more novelty. So in a way, it's like a, I've created a sustainable model. Yes. You know, I feed, and then you know what 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 I what I sprout after I feed on new experiences, I seed. Yeah. So I I feed, I sprout, and I seed. <laughs> yeah. And then that creates more food of novel experiences for me to feast on, which then I sprout new content, which then I seed to the to the world and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a good feedback loop. It's a permaculture garden. You the have only, created yes. a zero waste That's ecosystem right. yeah. of of growth. The only thing I need now is biological immortality <laughs> so that I can have a thousand years worth of exploration because I, I you know, if I had the choice to do what I'm doing now forever, mm. I would. Yeah. Like if I was told, "Okay, look, you just get to like explore." Yep. Go to places you've never been. Talk to people you've never talked to. Have interesting, delightful new experiences. Like you're you're Charles Darwin on the SS Beagle, yeah. And you're just like having insights and downloads till the end of time and making videos about it for the next two thousand years. I'm like, I'll take it. I'm like, so what? What troubles you then? What what conflict do you have? I'm like, the only conflict that I have is the possibility of running out of time. Yeah. That's like my personally when it comes to my career, my creative process, like my why. I'm just like, ugh. Because I'm like in my, you know, mid to late 30s now. And it's just like, fuck, like I want to do this for 200 years, you yeah. know. How do you see, uh, there's a couple different paths I want to go on. One is I want to ask you about the future and your vision for the future. But before we go there, I'd love to hear about, because you do, you are prolific in your creation. Yeah. I think it's quite inspiring as a matter of fact. Thanks. Um, and in that context, you know, I, I know, you know, we have mutual friends that you have, you know, Jamie and Steve Kotler, uh, who mm-hmm. I've had on the show. Um, and we've talked about flow state. And you actually, what's interesting is you, you, you can see athletes, like I just watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, who was able to tap into flow. Yeah. And it was fascinating to get kind of insights into his cognitive process and the way that he would psych himself up. Oh, I should watch you know, that documentary. Oh, you would love it, man. Really? Like, you really get into You game. get into, like, how he makes that, his thing happen? He's the most... Say what you. I mean, it was interesting because in the in the, the the degree to which I saw him as a heroic figure in in some ways was diminished because you saw the degree. To, however, my respect for him didn't diminish at all. In fact, it only he's probably the most competitive human ever to live. Like he like literally we could be we could be playing quarters and he'd walk by and he would 
he would have to play quarters and probably bet and us and you. have to win. Okay, got so it. So he, he just had that. He had that wiring yeah. of competition unlike any other human I've ever seen. Cool. But he, w- he had triggers that he would create to put himself into flow state. So one example was there was a guy who had a way better game than him and he lost the game. And so he made up in his own mind, which he created as real, that that guy talks smack. So that the next game, he came in and absolutely dominated. Wow. Right? And they asked him, did that actually happen? He's like, no, I just created it in my head. Mm-hmm. What do you use as a trigger in, mm-hmm. in your own head? Or what, is the, what are the ways, and maybe in part I want to know how this works for you and maybe obviously for the benefit of the listeners if there's anything that's replicable. Mm-hmm. But what are the ways in which you find you can induce that integrative flow state that you seem to be able to have greater access to than most? Um, well, there's definitely a respect for flow cycles. So rest and recovery are huge. And what I mean by that is that I'm not in an exuberant flow in like, like an intense expressive flow state 24 hours a day. Right. Like I am not, you know, in fact, like I think when people sometimes meet me and see me more reserved or just, just kind of chilling and watching, um, they're kind of like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing. This is just, this, this, I'm just respecting the flow cycles. Yeah. But when I, but, but, but so there's a relationship with biology and there's a respect for its possibilities and its limitations and you, and you have to work within those constraints because otherwise you're fucked. Yes. Um, but so, so, so sleep is actually huge for me. Like getting good sleep is, is solid and, and I mostly get good sleep, but sometimes I don't. And when I don't, it's a real bummer. Yeah. Um, so good sleep, uh, you know, exercise, the basics, right? Push-ups, pull-ups, like do the morning, move your body, um, eat, eat something solid that's going to keep you, you know, whatever complex carbs included, like just something that will keep you satiated for four or five hours. So like blood sugar is not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then if I'm carving time for like prolific flow inducing adventure and activity, it's like, you know, sleep well, have my morning routine and then have like, like brunch, brunch, breakfast, lunch kind of a meal. And then from like 12 or 1 PM until sunset that I can carve like you know five or six hours of like pure flow. And for, for that, it will be to pre, pre-design some, whatever the canvas in which this flow is going to unfold, what's going to be happening? You know, are we going for a walk in nature? Are we going for, are we, you know, riding jet skis on a lake? Like whatever, are we going on a boat? Like it's the container. I treat my flow experiences like psychedelic experiences. And yeah. so I want to create a magic circle. I want to create a container and in that space so that in a way, think of it as disciplined surrender. Yeah. So all of these steps have been taken. And then once I've created that magic circle, that context in which the magic is going to unfold, then I'm ready to, to surrender. So novelty is, imp- is important in that magic circle. And, and movement, I don't like to sit still. Mm-hmm. So I want to be able to like walk. I want the landscape to kind of change, you know, or like, you know, an electric bicycle or like if you're on safari in South Africa, you're on like the back of a safari truck, just so that there's motion and, 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 constantly shifting and changing landscapes. And then I, I, I do really like to titrate with, uh, with some cannabis mm-hmm. and, and, and it's all about the Goldilocks like sweet spot for optimal arousal because, you know, too little and, and nothing happens too much. And then you get pushed too far, uh, out of time. Mm. You, you drop the thread of time too much. And then that is not so fun. But but the sweet spot with cannabis is that it increases 
suggestibility and receptivity and reactivity to stimuli, both from within and from without. So you're more sensitive and open to your own thoughts and reflections. You're more suggestible, but you're also, your senses are primed and far more open to the environment. And so you're essentially stacking the odds in your favor because if the environment is novel and then you're adding a little bit of cannabis to make you more receptive to the fact that you're in a novel environment, you're much more likely to drop into flow. Michael Pollan describes it as a sense of first sight unencumbered by knowingness, Mm. which is such a beautiful and poetic way of rendering the experience. Um, And he's talking specifically about cannabis, that virginal noticing of the sensate world. For me, right the inner the inner essential nature the inner child that is curious that is excited that is like oh my god the ocean oh my god the mountain oh my god the tree oh my god this place oh my god the sunset oh my god the lighting oh my god i feel like i'm in a movie like that's naturally how i'm wired already i see in scenes i see in cinema i'm aesthetically oriented i am like i am oriented around aesthetics like that's what i love and so the novelty By putting me in an unfamiliar place, it's easier for me to perceive it archetypally. Instead of seeing a specific place that I'm in and that I know, I'm seeing a universal place. Instead of seeing this mountain and calling it, that's the Santa Monica Mountains. No, I'm like, no, that mountain just represents the idea of a mountain. Mm -hmm. It, It becomes the mystique of a mountain precisely because I'm decontextualizing it from a place in time and going into an archetypal experience of it, right? Mm. So that sense of first sight unencumbered by knowingness, that virginal noticing hurls me again into that, into that space where I'm, I'm in the Garden of Eden. And, and Aldous Huxley in, in Doors of Perception, you know, he's writing about mescaline. I don't need mescaline. Cannabis does the job. But he talks about the, the, the sort of aesthetic contemplation that you are compelled into. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to quote him here, but he says, uh, he's discussing what he felt looking at some flowers after being on mescaline, and for me it would be cannabis. But he says, I was no longer looking at an unusual flower arrangement. Instead, I was seeing what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation, the miracle moment by moment of naked existence. <laughs> so so there you go so that's like, okay Aldous Huxley right I was I was I was I was seeing what Adam had seen like Adam from Adam and Eve right Adam what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation like the minute that God made Adam and Adam woke up and he was looking at the fucking world on the morning of his creation <laughs> sunrise in Tulum on the morning of his creation Adam you know the miracle right moment by moment right of naked existence Huh. And then Michael Pollan says, sense of first sight, unencumbered by knowingness. Huh. I'm like, so different scholars, different philosophers, different thinkers, when talking about altered states of consciousness, when trying to language altered states of consciousness, the texture, the lived experience of a heightened state of being, of, of, a, of a state of heightened qualitative intensity, right? They all ultimately are saying the same thing. There's a through line here. There's a pattern here. So that makes me feel or it, it validates my own experience because I'm, I'm finding that the greats, those that I respect, have been there too and have found the words to map those terrains. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, how, that's my recipe to get there and, and, and it works and it always, always leads to an unending amount of, of content and of reflections. I mean, it's like, for me, it's, it's fail safe. Mm. It has never like 
not worked if I follow the protocols. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, first of all, thank you for that. You're uh, welcome, brother. Beautiful, beautiful. So I, interesting, you know, I've chatted a little bit about this. I, I haven't talked about this publicly until very recently, but... So one part of the uh, great aspects for my own tapping into flow, and I've been a fan of Aldous. I actually wrote my my term paper early days on Aldous Huxley. Uh, you know, I read a, a lot of the great. We share some of the same Beautiful. same literary heroes. Beautiful. Uh, and I recognized the Howard Thurman quote earlier about uh, the aliveness. Mm. For me, um, interestingly enough, you know, uh, studying and having the opportunity to be invited into some highly sanctified indigenous circles and being able to sit in these plant medicine environments, um, sitting with uh, an amazing uh, Wadika elder and and having the experience with uh, peyote, which I don't think I've ever spoken about publicly, but mm-hmm. in the context of ceremony mm-hmm. and being able to tap into that uh that you know there's a scene in the morning it's hard to describe where the sun is rising and and it's it, it's a sacred the sa- it's a sacred solar medicine so it, it really comes if you will it comes to life in the sun right so like just as we are circadian beings that that are that are driven through you know the and and, and, and by the sun you know this this man is sitting there and there's a there's a there's a pole and he's got a rattle and i describe it as like you could be sitting next to someone like an ella fitzgerald or an aretha franklin on the bus and if they weren't singing you would have no idea who they were mm. but when they sing they're in their song mm-hmm. and you see that that's part of their purpose, kind of like you with video. You know, you can tell that that's someone in their song, in their music. And in this morning, watching this peyo- the, the, this, this, this man work with the rattle, it was mm-hmm. like watching like mm-hmm. an Aretha Franklin sing her song. It mm-hmm. was, and then to feel the sun, it was the way you described the mountain. For me, it was like, it was like waking up anew to the world, the mundane, such that I had never seen it before, but will never be able to not see it that way again. Oh, that's, wow. And, and to be in that, in, that, in that gift and to know that that is true. And some people talk, think, we think about it in some ways as the ecstasies. It's like, oh, well, I think in the West we equate it with, you know, oh, that's just a, that's an entheogenic or that's a psychedelic substance. But to me, I think that's a misnomer. I think it, the the medicine is actually it's it's not just the phys- it's not just the physical substance. It's the way in which it was harvested. It was the prayers with which it was harvested. It's the intention of the carrier who's made sacred commitments for 40, 50, 60 years of their life going off to fast in the desert or in the context of the Amazon for 6 months at a time to be in relationship with the great guy and intelligence all around them such that they can hold the space, the set and setting mm-hmm. for everyone to step into their collective into the field as I call it like mm. into that place of our collective knowingness our, that great remembering of who we truly are and only through those containers have I been able to find and tap into that but I so resonate with the way you just shared it because it is it is that what I think is so beautiful is then and I think the part that's often missed again in the Western society is then the work of integrating it. So like how, do one, how does one take that seeingness, that knowingness, that great remembering and tap back into applying it in everyday life? And I love that you do that through your flow state and your work with the video. But, but what are your thoughts on 
what are your thoughts on this notion of integration collectively? And, 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 more, and more broadly, what are your thoughts on entheogenic substances and, and the notion of psychedelics and the renaissance, somewhat renaissance? I think some, some of what's happening, unfortunately, wouldn't be aligned with my version in terms of I, I have a profound reverence for the indigenous and mm-hmm. as carriers of, of that medicine. But I do think that there's a, there's a, there's a you know, we, you mentioned Pollen earlier, who I know you've interviewed and is a good friend of yours. There is, and, you know, and Tim Ferriss is doing research through Johns Hopkins. There is kind of a, a, a renewed interest in the in the power and possibility of these For plants, sure. and I do think, given climate change, given a lot of the things that are happening, my belief is that we need. There has to be some. Again, my belief is there's an you know we are awakening unto ourselves. That's mm-hmm. what I've seen in mm-hmm. the context of these states, and I think consciousness is seeking to wake up to itself. And ideally, humanity will make it through that process. Right? We're amidst the six, six mass extinction as we speak in mm-hmm. terms of species level, and the question is, can we evolve our consciousness fast enough to make it through to find the 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 adoption? And mm-hmm. and I don't know the answer. I don't know if we'll make it, but it's my belief that. That there's always there, with any challenge, there's an antidotal possibility. You know, it's like there's a great. Have you have you ever? I don't know if we've ever talked about. Do you know Brian Swim, the mathematical cosmologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love Brian. He's Swim. written some beautiful things about uh, what he calls, I guess, the cosmological perspective. Or exactly. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he talks about the tension of like our earth within the context of the solar system, within the context of the universe, which within the context of multitude of universes existing in a dynamic tension such that it's evolved life as we know it to flourish. And he takes it down in a microcosmic scale to talk about the, the hawk and the rabbit mm. and the hawk and the rabbit have evolved commensurate with each other. The hawk in its eyesight and its ability to fly the, the, the rabbit in its dexterity and its, and its motion because of the dynamic tension between their predator prey relationship. Mm. And mm. so it's my belief, that with within the context of any challenge, there is a potential within the Gaian kind of consciousness, evolution of the antidotal consciousness necessary for that integration, for that collective evolution. Um, what are your thoughts? Because I know you have great you have great profound thinking as it relates to futurism and singularity. I have a, a huge reverence for the ancestral. I also believe in the possibility of modern technology. I don't think we can go back in time, but I do think our psychology and our biology is largely remnant from you know evolution over hundreds of thousands of years, but we're evolving at such a rapid pace. I, I know you have a very positive uh, orientation around that, but what are your thoughts around the future? Yeah, well, I... I... I mean, there's so many things interesting that you said there. <laughs> um, take, you take any of them and, and run yeah, with it. Well, first in terms of just integration, right? Like I, I can have these powerful experiences, these mythopoetic experiences and these, these marvelous downloads and they they nourish me. That's that's me going to the wishing well and, yeah. and, and, and I'm satiated, temporarily satiated and, and typically in, in, in the integration, in the processing, in the afterglow, there's a desire to share and, and a lot of content comes from that and then that cycle is done, right? Mm-hmm. And then I rest and then I sleep and then the next day maybe I'm uploading the videos or I'm just kind of resting or whatever um, but eventually that that familiar feeling of like needing the next hit comes again Mm. so you know you know i i I, when i some people say you integration like or or you're an enlightened being i'm like yeah i don't know i think i have i have glimpses of enlightenment you know i have i have i have moments you know of extended duration a couple hours a couple days where i'm i'm in grace you know i'm in that space of gratitude and beauty but but you know 
then I'm sitting in traffic and it's really banal and, and it's hot and my options feel constricted and I, there's not a good plan and the day has been wasted and then I'm fucking angry that mm. a day has been wasted. You know, like every day wasted is is a crime, is my opinion. Yeah. So so I, I'm I'm hard on myself in that sense. I don't I don't just stay in the kumbaya just because I was in the kumbaya for the last week. Like like this is like no like I need to make that happen again for myself. You know, and it's it's laborious every time. Like in the sense that like choices have to be made, movement has to happen, action has to be taken, like agency has to be exercised. You know, I, I'm I'm I mean I wake up happy if I've slept well, but if I'm if I don't have like a plan by 10 a.m. of what is going to be the creative thing that happens today, there's that fear of like the day laying to waste, a day yeah. that was not what it could have been, you know? So that, that tension remains with me. Um, I'm a little, look, more power to you if, if you had uh, an entheogenic experience that enlightened you and now every day you're always in gratitude. I, I still get triggered by mediocrity, you know? I still get triggered when things, when I'm not, bewitched by excellence you know like mediocrity bums me out you know? entropy <laughs> entropy bums me out yeah so there's that um as far as my view on entheogenics in general look i think that mental health is a real thing right i think people are depressed and anxious and i think the the attention economy um with so many signals competing for our attention we're, we're getting pillaged and most of us don't have the discipline to manage your information diets and so you know you go into social media to get a sense of the zeitgeist, and before you know it, you're experiencing what uh, Douglas Rushkoff describes as digifrenia, mm. where it's just like all the noise, all the signals, all the politicization and anger and hostility, and, and you're getting a, a warped, distorted field uh, sense of things that, that, that is vastly amplifying our worst impulses and, and, and basically, I think, pillaging our mental health. In, in, in many ways because we, we, we're not using the tools the way we should or, or, or we're too often not, not using them the way we should uh, and that's a problem so I think there needs to be more like a kind of emotional literacy as to how to use these tools in a way that enriches our lives and enriches our being um, and so in any case people are a mess inside and so thankfully psychedelics are, are making a comeback they seem to be able to hit a recess button to shake the snow globe. Those, those, <laughs> those, those uh, looping, obsessive mental patterns that we get stuck in. Um, the broken record, the cul-de-sacs and error messages of a mind that has become like too ordered um, and too hypervigilant, maybe doing no small part to that unhealthy relationship with social media or watching partisan cable news. Ugh. The point being it sucks. And so, you know, a psychedelic trip in a controlled environment pummels you back into into the grace you know or stargates you into the sacred and that's the that's always the great reset um and the question is yes you'll integrate it but how many weeks or months does the grace last before you fall back into the habits that aren't serving you do you go back and change your life do you go back and change your habits do you go back and change your feedback loops because if you don't then the psychedelic experience will give you a month, an afterglow for two three months and then you're back in the same fucking patterns so that's a thing. But do I support the deployment of psychedelics for psychotherapy? Yes. Do I think they work better than SSRIs and all these other drugs? Yes. 
Do I believe people should be carefully screened? Yes. Do I believe a classically trained therapist should be there in the room along with the shaman? Yes. Do I think we should be really controlling of the environment? Yes. Do I think that anybody should open a psychedelic clinic in Costa Rica just because they drank ayahuasca and the gods told them to? No. <laughs> so, so, you know, they're not tools, they're not toys. And like, you know, Jordan Peterson said, the, like the Ark of the Covenant, you know, you can look inside, but God is in there. Mm-hmm. But if you look, you might die. Mm-hmm. You know, so psychedelics, they're... I'm not going to say they're they're not dangerous at like a neurotoxic level, but they're not toys, you know. Like you're 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 playing with divination, you're playing with fire, so you best be following a, a safe protocol. I think that's so very. I just want to hit on that because th- that is actually, and you know, I've chatted about this. Um, I think the safe utilization, again, the safe set and setting, is so important because you are. And I think that's even people with good intentions. There are a lot of people that are holding space or holding ceremony, quote unquote, that have no qualifications. It's like uh, I wouldn't go to a medic, I w- uh, you know, a medical doctor. I don't go to a guy who read a book in the library for my surgery. You don't want to <laughs> go to, when you're dealing with someone's psyche, and you're do- and also you're in a collective space where other people's stuff, you know, come come in. I think it requires a real expertise. So I, I like. I just want to pause for if, a moment to say I like that you you, yeah. you said it should be safe. Yeah. If you're calling yourself a shaman, you're not a shaman. Definitely. Um, That's my and, biggest and, pet peeve. And, 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 and if you spent $1,000 on your outfit in some like cool stores in Tulum <laughs> so that you could look like a shaman chic, you're not a shaman. Like I, I think, honestly, the greatest shamans are artists. Yes. I think musicians. I think painters. I think orators. I think, I think artists are shamans. I actually read a book recently about it called The Artist as Shaman, um, where he makes the case that people like Vincent van Gogh were, were shamanistic. You know, yeah. Beethoven, Mozart were shamanistic. I mean, that's, they, whatever they went, when they created what they created, that to me is like bringing back the psychedelic landscape into 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 the you know into the bottle they brought lightning into the bottle i don't know how they did it but they did it you know i try to do that in some of the videos but but to me that's that's shamanism um that is well i mean the, the traditional notion of a shaman i mean this is what's interesting to me it wasn't some like exotic you know tulum oriented title right it was actually born of an extraordinary illness generally speaking an extraordinarily arduous rite of passage where someone sacrificed the, the the glory in some ways of this life to live between this life and the next, mm-hmm. oftentimes as an outcast, as a member that lived between two worlds, as an artist would, right? Like a Van Gogh, like cut off his ear. I mean, like these people are living between two worlds, but they have no choice but to be a vessel for the great c- creative to flow Precisely. Precisely, and I and I totally resonate with that. I think great art is that it's yeah. it's the it's being a vessel for oh, no doubt dude. for the muse, no doubt. I mean, dude, when when I compare like going through the motions of a normal day, like oh, got to go buy something in the store and got to come back, and then you're going to watch something, you know, going to read this man, like versus like somebody like Chris Nolan who writes a screenplay like Inception and then like directs that film and like the actors that act in that film and the composers that make the music for a film like that. And then that fit gets played in a movie theater and the mental experience that we as an audience have from something that's been crafted by genius, you know, by gods. Like high art for me is is lightning in a bottle. High art is 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 a is a way of holding temporary temporary stasis over a visionary state, you know? And and that's why I mean, you know, I I I I aspire to spend as much time as possible in that mythopoetic domain, that archetypal domain that 
that the, the domain of the artist and the poet mm. interests me more. You know, I don't like titles like shamans and priesthoods, you know, but I like titles like, you know, the mythopoetic place of the, of the poet, you know, of the, of the artist that, that interests me. Um, but the, the last part of your comments before about technology, I, I, I don't view technology as unnatural. That's the thing. I think that if it's allowed by the laws of physics and it exists, then it's as natural as a flower, my friend. Like, I think this, this thing that we're wearing in our head, I mean, it, it, was, it was born out of human imagination. Yeah. The technology that is recording this conversation, capturing lightning in a bottle, capturing a, a biological process, is a process that is mediating creativity and divination and capturing it in a bottle so thousands, millions of others can see it, that's a miracle and it's astonishing and we made it but it's nature because we're nature because there is no distinction between the born and the made all of it is what's happening on planet earth you know so all of it is natural so that's that's my view now the question is because we have self-awareness we we're asking ourselves whether there are unintended consequences that we deem as negative. Like, okay, like we can't have an extractive economy. We can't run out of resources. We can't destroy other species because we've decided that that's a bad thing because we have self-awareness and we're like, you know what? Huh? It's not good to ruin the environment. Huh? There's a lot of beautiful animals in this planet. Why are we killing them? You know, so like, duh, that's not a good thing. So we have to course correct, but that's very different than just saying like technology is bad. It's not technology. It's not bad. Technology is human imagination. We can imagine beautiful things, or we can imagine horrible things. We can imagine machine guns, or we can imagine poetry. Yes, it all comes from human creativity. Therefore, it's all natural. Ultimately, totally, I, I agree. But it, but technology is in a way agnostic, and I agree with you in, sure. in the sense that it's 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 an evolution. But not every aspect of human imagination, as you articulated, is benevolent, right? Some of it actually is the opposite. And so when, when I – and I, I'm actually not anti-technology either. I'm actually fascinated by mm-hmm. modern technology. And mm-hmm. I think in many ways it will, it will be an essential element in our, in our collective evolution such mm-hmm. that we can sort of, if you will, move this ship back into what I hope to be equilibrium uh, amidst the waves of For our sure. time. For sure. But I think what's – but I do have – you know, and we don't need to go down this track but when i think about ai and i think about like just the evolution of different sort of you know i wonder if we evolve beyond the human container as we know it uh you know you got folks like elon who are looking to put microchips in the brain that doesn't mean that there's by any means the death of the human uh but there is sort of you know some would argue even the phone is the beginning of the cyborg right like we are we are starting actually to meld you, with tech. Your, your, your reading glasses are the beginning of the cyborg yeah fair enough <laughs> There's these guys, uh, David Chalmers and Andy Clark, they wrote a famous paper called The Extended Mind Thesis, where they kind of flip the whole thing on its head with technology. They say technology is a scaffolding of the mind, Mm. and they say that intelligence is distributed between biological and non-biological scaffoldings. Mm. So to be human is to be a cyborg. We are the natural-born cyborg. Reading glasses make us cyborgs. Clothing that help us protect ourselves from the elements make us cyborgs. We incorporate non-biological props and scaffoldings into ourselves, essentially. There's a kind of plasticity with which we integrate these things, and they eventually become part of our mental apparatus, so to speak. I mean, my smartphone is definitely part of my mental apparatus. They, they, they believe that the mind is not just bounded or limited to the brain. Certainly the brain is a prerequisite for mind, but that the mind is what is what emerges in the feedback loops between brains, tools, and environments. Mm. So that's kind of how they see it, mm. which I think is a, is a great 
there's a great metaphor lens uh, angle on it. Let me ask you this question. So you and I, when we were walking on the canals, referred to yourself, and we, we, talk, we touched on this briefly, and I, I, I see you as this, as an artist. Mm-hmm. What, would you, what do you hope your, the legacy of Jason Silva is? I know we don't like to necessarily, uh, we're not, you know, you've, got, you've got hopefully a very long time. How about, the living, how about the living myth? Yeah, the living myth. So what would you like that mythology to represent, or what would you like it to be a catalyst for in the minds of other humans? Hmm. You know, I, I, the reason I, I I always go back to making content to go to the wishing well is because I never remember long enough uh, what what I what I have to constantly relearn. So you relearn, then you forget, then you have to relearn or remember. And and I I want people if they experience my work, I want them to find my work. It evokes in them a remembering, mm. like that. It, it just very quickly, like remind. Oh yes, like that's right. Like that's what's important. Um, if I can be a catalyst for that remembering, that that feels pretty good. I think that's a beautiful legacy, my friend. Last few questions here. You talk about, and I've sent this video to other folks. You have a you have a riffing on the the ecstasies, the process, the the, the notion of love in a way mm-hmm. that is very eloquently stated. Thanks, man. Um, I know to sort of bring the conversation full, full circle that you and I are all both also fans of love. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you see as, you know, give me a, just a, a few words or thoughts around the process of, you know, there's a common notion of falling in love. Some people think that you rise in love. What's your sense of calling love into your life? How, in terms of finding that potential partner that is that person you want to dance with? I don't with? know if I fall, but I definitely leap. <laughs> yes, I, you do leap. I know you well enough yeah. to know you do leap. Yeah, I think, I think what's, what is interesting is that I always say that I'm I'm always looking for. I mean, if I'm single, I'm mm. looking for love. Mm. Like I want it. Like I don't wake up any time being single and say I'm happy I'm single. I'm like, right. no, I want to be in love again. And but the but the but the truth is that you can say I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. But like it always shows up as a surprise. Yeah. And 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 Elizabeth Gilbert in a recent interview with Tim Ferriss actually was talking about. Uh, something that all great art has to have. She says all great art has to be both surprising and inevitable. And this is really cool because this also applies to serendipity, synchronicity, and love. Um, So what makes art surprising and inevitable? She says, okay, so great art has to be surprising in that it has to go, it has to make you go, wow, oh my God, I just totally didn't see that coming. There was like no way that I would have ever expected that. Like it has to completely violate your expectations. It has to smash your jadedness. Like it has to completely sideline you and take you by surprise. It has to make you go, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. And so that's the surprising part. But then it also has to be inevitable. So it has to make you go, wow, I totally didn't see that coming. And then it has to make you go, but that's exactly how it needed to happen. So that's about art. So I think that resonated with me because I was like, oh my God, that doesn't just apply to art. That applies to like, any encounter in which you see the flash of divination play out, 
So it's it, art is just a concretized form of it. But like any experience of serendipity and synchronicity is like surprise, like oh my god, like these girls that walked in when we were recording that I was just hanging out with two days ago. You know, I just came to this house, this random house to meet you. And then the two of them end up with this. So total surprise, totally unexpected. And then, but of course, that had to happen. <laughs> exactly. And so, and that's love. You know, when I, when I met Rachel in Burning Man, like, I threw myself into the chaos. I was surfing the place. I was just like, I'm open. My heart is ready, whatever. But, you know, on like day three, at middle of the day, bike riding to meet my friend he randomly is like oh meet this girl she shakes my hand like totally unexpected and i know instantly and then of course in the in the course of 48 hours the amount of miracles that had to happen for us to find each other again was like of course never saw it coming and of course it had to happen like this and i was in love for a year and a half beautifully said man that is that's good right that was real good that was real good yeah um okay this is a question that I was asked. It's it's a bit uh, it's a it's a bit of a big one, but uh, I'd love to, I'd love your thoughts on it. You can riff on it. Doesn't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to go uber deliberation. But mm-hmm. uh, a friend once asked me years ago. He said, if if you were to t- if you were to add one thing and take away one thing from your life to have the most transformative impact, what would it be? Add one thing. And while you think about it, I'll share mine. So mine at the time, this was back when we were both living in New York, I said if I were to give up alcohol and if I were to, if I were to uh, be in a profoundly loving, committed relationship, those two things would have t- totally altered my life. And I've given up the alcohol. I haven't quite manifested the relationship yet, but um, are there two things that come to yeah, mind? Yeah, sure. I, I wish, and I don't know, because maybe that's part of what, my, my dharma is, but I wish that I could give up, like, doubt and fear. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, people are like, wow, Jason, like, you, you seem so fearless in your videos and everything you've achieved, and yada, yada. I'm like, it's in spite of my fears and doubt, yeah. not because I have no fears and doubts. Um, I, you know, like, I, I'm, I think I have a high trait neuroticism. Like there's, there's, there's control freak neurotic things like, you know, like I can't just like lay around the house all day, even on a Sunday. Like I'm like restless and neurotic. If I don't leave the house by 11 and the day has been wasted, like there's a lot of like neurosis in my like restlessness and, but, but that also maybe makes me, it lights a fire under my ass and makes me be creative. You know, the fear of time passing. I wish I could let go of that fear, but like, or the, you know, but maybe that fear pushes me to so I don't know but I, I kind of I what I do know is that when I'm in the pocket when I'm in the flow when I'm in the zone then there's no fear and there's no doubt mm. so maybe I guess what I'm saying is I wish I could trust what happens in those spaces enough not to relapse back into doubt and fear mm. the next day or the next week um, so if I could yeah so you would sacrifice fear and doubt I think so, you know, unless it's unless it's necessary. But I do. I, I I hear no. I resonate with what you're sharing because 
I, I've known you for a while and I, I do find profound courage in it. But I think, like you said, all of us have any, with any gift, there's going to come a sort of a commensurate sec, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't, I wish that duality didn't exist, but it's like yin and yang. You have to have sort of probably that restlessness, that doubt is part of the genius of your creation. Cause you feel like you always need to be creating. Um, what, how about the positive? What would you add in? And, and soon we're going to jump so into this funny. pool folks. Um, what would I add? What would I add? Um, On this day, it doesn't have I to be wish, every day. I wish I could add a bit more decisiveness, mm. a confident decisiveness. Mm. You know, I whatever my ex felt was missing was not cognitive. Mm. It was somatic. I wish I could add whatever she felt was missing. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, man. You're welcome. That's vulnerable. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, I want to acknowledge you, actually. I want to honor you here as we move towards the close of this particular conversation. And that I have known you, obviously, for the public persona, Jason, but I've known, you, I've known the behind-the-scenes Jason for quite a number of years. And... I want to acknowledge both the stand that you are as a vessel for the great creative reckoning, I think, that you demonstrate in the beauty of your prose, the evoking prose of an artist in a visual medium that has spoken to millions of people around the world. I think it's, uh, I think it's beautiful. I remember when you launched your series, and to see a few years later what you've created and the lives that it's touched and the legacy of those footprints, those tracks turning into lives of their own uh, is something that's quite beautiful to witness and an inspiration. Um, so I want to acknowledge Takes you. one to no one. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Uh, so I want to acknowledge you for that. And also your vulnerability, man. I, I, think, I think oftentimes, especially, um, I think one can lead with their strong suit you know, you could just come on and pontificate and, and appease the crowd, so to speak. But to share, for example, some of the vulnerabilities of like areas in which you're reflecting, I think that humanizes. And I've found that is what oftentimes is most relatable and, and can be the source for, for great transformation. So thanks for showing up uh, in every way that you show up, my friend. Thank you, man. What a pleasure. Yeah. And then my, my final question, which is one I ask of, of every guest. And, and interesting, I, I, your response is one that I'm very excited to hear, which is, you know, I, I launched this, as you know, uh, in part out of a, of a gestation of a journey. Uh, there's butts walking by as we record I love this. We're about to go jump in a pool at sunset for the ecstasies of the moment. Wow. Um, but before we do that, this last question is, you know, I, I launched this series um, off this notion of uh, this peak mind, right? And you know there's a profoundly personal aspect in relationship to my father, who, who was a very strong peak mind, but, and, and then also had, had dementia, which, which showed me just how powerful the vessel of the brain mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. and can be. Mm -hmm. And he is my heart, and it will always be my heart. But it's also the, the gold, just in any challenge, right? And I, I believe in, in part his legacy that lives through me is in sitting down with some of the peak minds of our time 
to hopefully be a vessel for the audience that listens in, in the context of their own peak, you know, their own optimal state of living. What is your notion of peak mind? <laughs> you know, a guy that I, I really like, his name's uh, Jeff Brown. He, he, he wrote a book called Grounded Spirituality. And we had an Instagram live because I really resonated with his passages. He really was calling out the spiritual bypassers and mm. the sort of faux spirituality, the self-righteous spiritualists. And, and he was talking about a more grounded spirituality. I really resonated with it. And we were talking and I was kind of telling him about my experience and my, 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 my sort of search for bliss. And, and that I called myself a wonder junkie in, in homage to Carl Sagan. And he said, actually, you're, you're the peak experience man. And I was like, what? He's like, that's what I'm going to call you, Peak Experience Man. I'm like, oh, Jeff, how are you, man? Hello, Peak Experience Man. That's what he called <laughs> me. And I was like, okay. And I once, I once spoke to this other woman, a psychedelic author called Diana Slattery, and she said that I was a cognitive ecstasy addict. So cognitive ecstasy or aesthetic ecstasy is this sort of aesthetic from being like overwhelmed by the power of ideas, the power of beauty, and it just like takes you to a different place. And so then he used the term peak experience, man. And I was like, okay, so you have this podcast called Peak Mind. So when I hear peak mind, I hear, well, that's where I'm at when I'm having a peak experience. I live for peak mind. Peak mentation, you know, peak consciousness is like what I build my life around. So for sure, yes. <laughs> yes, brother. You are a peak mind, and it's been an honor to have you on the show, man. Thank you so much for your time and energy, brother. Thank you. Love you. Cheers. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jason. Uh, I know that I loved it. I thought it was an incredible conversation. Loved going deep with him. And uh, likely will not be our last conversation. Uh, Great friend. And uh, check out his work, Shots of Awe. Some really, really wonderful, inspirational videos. Um, if you have yet to leave a rating and review, your five-star reviews mean the world to me. Please go over take 20 seconds on uh, iTunes. Again, it helps us grow, uh, grow the show. So thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. And uh, I am committed to bringing you great guests. We're knocking on the door of our 100th episode. And I'm just so grateful that you guys uh, give me your time and attention. I am uh, so grateful, and I do not take it for granted. So thank you so much. Uh, Please go out there and live your inspired life.